0: Welcome back to The Brandon White Show, where we have conversations worth listening to give you an edge to win in your business and your life. I'm your host, Brandon White. Here we go.
1: Welcome to The Edge Podcast, your weekly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business, making you a happier, healthier, and richer business owner. And here's your host, Brandon White.
0: Hey, Nick. Look at that
1: studio, man. You're all
0: set up. You're a pro. That's what COVID does to you, Nick.
1: Home office investments. I'm all about it.
0: It's a, it's a, if you're going to get back into podcasting, like don't do anything in moderation. So I said, why not just build a full studio? I like it. And you said Half Moon Bay? In Half Moon Bay, man. Yeah. You, you've moved up to Seattle. You were in Livermore across the bay from us.
1: Yeah, we were in Livermore 14, 15 years. It had become our
0: adopted hometown,
1: but what uh, happened? What happened was COVID. (laughs) We (laughs) felt, we felt really isolated from our local friend group where we didn't, we didn't quite make it into anybody else's bubble. We're like, well, you know, what are you comfortable with? What are you comfortable with? And my wife and I both grew up in the Seattle area. So this was uh, close to home. Close to all the rest of the family, grandparents and stuff. So, um, that and our young, our oldest was starting kindergarten this fall. So he, we wanted to get him into the school district and it was, man, moving itself was a mental and physical challenge, probably more on the mental side, but the like overcoming the inertia to like actually commit to doing it was probably the harder
0: part. Well, I can relate when my wife and I moved here to California. I was living here splitting time at beginning. And then we still have our home on the East Coast, but I had just been delaying it because it just felt so overwhelming, like so much stuff. And I kept delaying it. that's like, when are we and we were driving across the country. And okay. Seattle's far enough, but we were driving all the way across and I was just delaying it, I guess. And she said, we're leaving. I forget what day it was, Nick. Like November or something, and she's like, "I am pulling out of here with or without you." So the moving me. the moving truck is coming this day, so figure that out. And I was like, "Yeah, I needed that." You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Needed nothing like a deadline for uh, it, motivation for sure. It was it
0: was um it was crazy. So, do you miss the sun yet?
1: Yeah, we actually spent all last weekend in San Diego, and we're like. Oh yeah, I remember. (laughs) This is pretty nice.
0: Yeah, I like Seattle area. Actually, the last place I was, was in Seattle on the name of the, a a very close friend of mine lives on an island. There's so many islands up there, but it's a Vashon Island and very cool island. And that was, I, it was March 20th or 19th. And literally that was the last trip. Yeah. You know, Another, COVID another
1: just podcaster, hit. just uh, just a, an acquaintance.
0: Oh no, this is just an old friend, not a podcaster. Um, but the COVID had just had an outbreak in Seattle, and at a elderly home, and I was like, "What is this about?" And then, yeah, you know, it was kind of ground zero early on. It was. It really was. Well, listen, man, I'm excited. You know, I've been listening to your show for a while. I've I'm a, I'm a fellow longtime podcaster. I started podcasting in 1998, which may age me a little bit.
1: That's <laughs> those MP3 files were, were big files back then, you know.
0: There you go, man. I it was it wasn't called podcasting. We just called it. I called it. I'm going to record myself on an audio file so I don't have to write 4,000 word blog articles.
1: Yeah, and, it was even pre-blogging in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was. Well, yeah, I was. I started what I started my first company in 1996 on the internet, what became the largest social networking and e-commerce site for sport fishermen. And it was the truth of the matter is, is I couldn't afford Nick to print a, I figured this out by going to the printer. I wanted to do a fishing magazine and I couldn't afford to print it. And through college, I was like, yeah, there's this thing that called the internet. And I said, why don't I just put a magazine on the internet? And then we wrote a bulletin board because CompuServe at the time had BBS boards. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, so they had bullet, there they they were bulletin boards, which are the old school V-Bulletin. And there's a bunch of companies now that have really innovated that. And we wrote a message board, which okay. the modern version is a, a wall, right? The Facebook sure. wall or yeah. Instagram wall. And we wrote that. And we were doing things in flat file HTML. Didn't even have databases. It was all flat file. We were writing server side includes to do headers and footers on websites. SEO was if you can get a hold of David and Jerry at Yahoo, were who were hand categorizing websites. I mean, this is literally the web yeah. back back then, and there was Excite, Lycos, Netscape. Eventually came along. Yeah, and then I think in 1990. Seven or 1998 is when we converted to a database-driven website, which was incredibly hard. Our company was compared to Yahoo and PC Magazine that put us on the map because, and for listeners and you, you probably roll your eyes, but this was really hard back then. We could customize the experience around zip code. And we were written up because we had figured out the code, which now is just a one line of code, but back then was really hard. And, and that's sort of my background in the internet podcasting.
1: Yeah. That's, world. uh, that's really early days. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. It was, um, crazy. Now when side hustle nation, I'll be honest, when I got back into trying to be a pod trying, like getting back into podcasting, I didn't know I'd taken, I'd sold the company. I'd taken some years off from really engaging heavily in the internet being a consumer, but I had a software engineering business that just didn't allow me quite candidly to interact on the internet as much because of uh, the work we did and the places we were. And I was trying to get back into podcasting and I found, I'll be honest, I found your podcast because how long have you been on with Side Hustle Nation?
1: Uh, I started in 2013.
0: Yeah. Long time. And it was you, it was Pat Flynn, and I think I listened to because courses were becoming a thing, I guess. And, and Amy, Amy Porterfield had been on for a, a while, mainly because you were the prevalent people who actually kept releasing podcasts versus the podcasts that <laughs> you're laughing <laughs> yeah, at. Yeah.
1: Well, we it, it's, it's hard to keep it going. This was a fear of mine early on. Like, what am I committing myself to? <laughs> like I had. I didn't. I didn't have any idea how it worked, right? So I watched Pat's like video tutorial series. He's like, "Well, the first thing you need is media hosting." It's like, media hosting. What do you mean? I can't just throw this up on my website or at you know, iTunes isn't just going to host it. Like, oh, I didn't. It was fifteen bucks a month, and had it been 25, 30 like the show might not exist. He's like, "Well, what am I? What am I committing myself to for the long term here? What I got to run out you, of people
0: to talk to." You know, what made you get interested in podcasting though? Because that's really where you. I mean, you started your website, and you, know, you can help our listeners understand that. I found your podcast, then I found your website. How do you even you? I you say you? Re- I actually like how you phrase it. You said, "I retired from corporate America at 25." Did you just find this podcasting idea and say, "I'm going to try this out"? How did it happen?
1: Yes, yeah, so this was you know several years deep into being a quote unquote full time entrepreneur, and it was at a kind of a lower point. In the the primary business that I was running, that's you know the the original side hustle was this comparison shopping site for footwear. That was the three years of nights and weekends while working corporate that finally let me you know (laughs) build up the courage to uh, give in my notice uh, to my boss. So I was running that, and like any business, had lots of ups and downs. And it was during one of those downs that was like, well, you start asking the questions that I turn around and ask a lot of listeners and readers too, who are looking for an idea or a niche. And you start with, what are you excited about? What lights you up? What do you never get tired about talking about? What do you want to be known for when somebody Googles you? And I had been writing a little personal blog at that time. And some of the most fun articles for me were these ones that would deconstruct what I thought would be interesting businesses. So we looked at some of these like penny auction sites that were prevalent at the time. We looked at like restaurant.com, which would sell these, you know, twenty-five dollar restaurant gift cards for sometimes as low as like three or five dollars. You're like, how does this work? Like where does the money go? And and it's like, you know, deconstructing those was a ton of fun. And on top of that had this own, you know, my own experience of building this side hustle and scaling it to the point where I could quit. And so, this, you know, okay, I'm going to rebrand my personal blog as side hustle nation and you know, really focus in on this stuff. And thinking of myself as a writer first, the podcast was almost this afterthought, because the people that I was paying attention to at the time, you know, to, to build a, a personal brand on the internet, you you got to have a podcast, or YouTube, YouTube was like the other channel, but that was like, Really, really intimidating. Like, I definitely don't want to do video. So podcasting was like the lesser of two evils. And it was still challenging to overcome the inertia. Like, you know, order the mic and it sits on the side of the desk. You keep staring on it every day. And you're like, dude, nothing is going to happen until you schedule that first call. And so gratefully, uh, Chris Kilborn, who was a contact of mine from another business, agreed to be guest number one. And we, uh, we recorded and like, okay, let's, let's do this thing.
0: And when you recorded, did you? understand the editing and i mean do you have a mac and just do it in GarageBand? what happens
1: i was in so i'm still on pc and so was in audacity for me probably should have spent the half an hour to learn like basic audio editing on youtube didn't really do that so instead of compression it was just like amplify <laughs> amplify everything to like get the levels somewhat reasonable i remember using level later like a I don't know if they have it on Mac, but PC software where you you know drag the wave file in there and try and like match levels. So you know the first couple years of the show probably don't sound so good. Finally got some uh, professional editing help. Maybe three years deep into the show.
0: episode is sponsored by the Halle Financial Team at Expert Lending. Buying a house in today's market is competitive and you need a lender that can close fast and get you the very best rate. The team is licensed in 48 states and has over 20 years experience in the real estate and lending space and access to lending rates that most mortgage brokers can't get. I know because I'm an investor in the team. If you need a mortgage or know someone that does, call or text Kara at 571-271- Nine zero eight six, and talk to a real human who will give you the customer service you deserve. Again, call or text Kara at five seven one two seven one nine zero eight six. Now back to the show. When you're doing your side hustle and doing your corporate job, did you have a goal? And I know you talk about this, but th- this really is about you and 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 learning about you. Did you? Say I'm going to match my current salary. I'm going to 1.5 it. I'm going to save up enough money to have a year to figure it out. What was the trigger? You just got tired of working in corporate America.
1: Yeah, a combination of factors. I wanted to see a track record of revenue or track record of profits rather that would at least cover my monthly expenses. The time that I quit, it hadn't fully covered my day job salary. But I could see this path forward where, you know, given an extra 40-50 hours a week to dedicate to it, like, okay, I'm pretty confident I can get it to that level and beyond. I think it's really tricky. And some people are able to do it, which is always really, really impressive. They, oh, I'm making more for my side hustle than I am for my day job. So that's when I knew it was time to quit. That's a, that's a heavy hurdle to clear for a lot of people so instead hopefully you're living below your means and look to just well as long as you're covering your expenses and you have a little bit of a safety net runway then i think that's that's when i felt comfortable uh making the leap and it, the other factor was just you know there was a it seemed like so i was in the auto industry and you know the mid early 2000s were not a great time for domestic automakers and so there's always like layoffs going around so there was another round of you know voluntary and involuntary separations or something that always seemed to coming down the road so i'm the combination of those two factors, like I don't see myself here long-term anyway, so uh, let me raise my hand and uh, hopefully save somebody else's job at the same time.
0: Were you married at the time?
1: We weren't married at the time, but it was with my wife.
0: Yeah, so what would your wife say about this when you quit a corporate job that pays every two weeks with good regularity?
1: She has always been super supportive, and I think that's maybe one unfair advantage that I've had throughout is she's always been in my corner and we've always been able to live off of one income where, you know, if something blows up, then that's okay. And and I mean like early on we were in college and still dating and I was thinking of taking this like house painting internship. I don't know if they run these, they run them all over the country, but I was getting recruited for this thing. And of course they don't tell you it's house painting until you get like five steps deep into the recruitment or interview process. I'm like, do you want a summer internship that you know will teach you entrepreneurship and sales and marketing and customer service and profit management? All this like that sounds great for a young aspiring business major. And you know, then they're like, by the way, it's you know, you got to go knock on doors and and paint houses. Like, okay. And so I was like, is this a scam? Is this a pyramid scheme? You know, what's going on? And then Bryn, my wife to be, was like, dude, it's, it's three months of your life. If it sucks, it sucks, but it's not life threatening. You know, why don't you go for it? What's the worst thing that happens? And Really the worst thing that happened was, you know, getting scarred for life and like having this picture of working for profits and not wages and having a taste, having a taste of that entrepreneurial uh, lifestyle.
0: So you jump ship. What was the business model of the shoe site? It was, it was it selling shoes or was it comparing shoes?
1: So it was a price comparison site. So if you were looking up a specific model of New Balance or Rockport or whatever kind of shoe, it would tell you where you could find the best price. So we'd pull in the catalogs from Zappos, Amazon, a few dozen other retailers and show you where you could get the best price. We had this cool like product level uh, coupon integration that would be baked in. You know, if you punched in your zip code, we could estimate tax and most of them had free shipping at that time. And so that was all on an affiliate model. So referring traffic to these different retailers. And at the time, at the beginning, like a lot of these companies really saw affiliate marketing as, you know, we're gonna front load our customer acquisition cost in the hopes of like having a customer for life. And, you know, they're gonna buy shoes for the whole family and they're gonna buy, you know, their next 10 years worth of shoes. And so they were paying pretty sizable commissions, especially for a physical product, 15, 20% in some cases, where today on Amazon you're lucky to get four percent commission. So it was it was a good time to be in that space. And that was back when both price comparison was a thing instead of, you know, people would start their product search on Google instead of starting it on Amazon. And so it played in, in that space, capturing like long tail Google search traffic.
0: Yeah. You were, you were the, my Simon. Do you remember my Simon?
1: My Simon sounds familiar. I'm thinking like price grabber, next tag,
0: shopping.com. Your next decade, but my Simon was the comparison engine in the day. And you were really the, my Simon for shoes. And you were able to make a, full living off of that because of the commissions and the commissions for everything, even Amazon in the early days were way higher. I mean, we made a few thousand bucks a month off of books. You can't do that unless you're driving tens of millions of page views. Yeah, I, I would, I would say, would, you, would that be fair today?
1: Yeah. Amazon associates. I look at it, look at it as like bonus money. It's, it's nice to have, but my level of confidence, that it continues to be a thing is not super high. I mean, they have a track record of just cutting commissions and continually making their terms and service or terms of use like worse and worse for affiliates because they're the juggernaut. They understand their market leadership position. They're like, why are we paying you know our margin to these other people where we probably get the sale anyway?
0: Yeah, I think they've got such penetration that it doesn't make sense, and it sucks. I mean, but it's been a recurring pattern of every every affiliate program I've ever been a part of, every social network I've been a part of, I ran a social network so I'm sympathetic to that that eventually you've got to you got to make money. The server bills cost a lot. It does cost a lot and you you media companies are profitable, but you got to make money. And then they start charging you to access those people and in Amazon's case, I don't know, they have how many Amazon Prime members now? few hundred million or something
1: yeah it's something i don't know it's a it's a it's a impressively large number for for what it is and i think there's there's opportunity there in a lot of different areas because we're used to the convenience of you know next day shipping and one-click ordering and all of the positives that have come out of that and so there's okay well how can i apply that to other business models and you know, going back to the comparison thing, like thinking of it as I call it the sniper method where you're looking at some of these, you know, my Simons or next tags of the world and just trying to snipe, you know, if you're, if you're all you're after is a little lifestyle business, trying to snipe a little segment of that to try to spin off and build your own thing and be better and more relevant and more highly targeted in that space. And so it's like, okay, we can build the best comparison engine out there. If we dedicate only to footwear and we can do it better than these big guys, and we can find lower prices and and all that stuff. Like just today on the podcast is a guy, Jeff DiOrio, who built a online business and offline for teaching kids chess. And so if we look at a marketplace like OutSchool, that is, you know, for K through 12 online, remote group classes like small group classes and chess is one of the things that they have on there so it's like oh okay you know we can slice that off and build up my own reputation and build up my own thing and not have to pay these platform fees if you wanted to do uh, do it through the platform
0: yeah i think carving out i think people i think it scares people nick it scares me still to basically go after a very 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 small niche and it's because it just doesn't feel big but <laughs> You can eventually expand that with your going back to your comparison engine with the shoes. Did you sell that company or did you just sunset it or what happened?
1: Yeah, in hindsight, I wish I had sold it at its peak, but you never know, it's the peak. Um, It kind of just died a slow death. It played in the margin between the cost of traffic and what the traffic was worth in terms of uh, affiliate commissions. And over the course of Nine plus years of running it, it just that margin got narrower and narrower. You know, we used to be able to buy Google clicks for fifteen cents, twenty five cents, and then you know started to be fifty five, seventy five in some cases. And on the same, uh, on the other side, the commissions kept getting cut, and so it became kind of a difficult place to play in. And so we tried a bunch of last ditch efforts to try and revive it. Like you know, just let's just eighty twenty the crap out of this. You know, we've got. Three hundred fifty thousand shoes clogging up our database. Like, what if we just focused on the top hundred best-selling brands? And you know, would that make the site faster? And would that make you know all this data processing and daily maintenance stuff that we're doing? So there's all this inventory turnover. Like, would that make it more efficient? But just ended up being kind of a kind of a tough thing. You know, kind of faced a lot of different battles. There was some affiliate marketing. Legislation that went down in California that you know, forced me to move to Nevada for a few months and like rent a little apartment uh, across the state line and it just seemed like it was you know one thing after another but I was uh, really grateful to have a couple different backup projects. One of those was Side Hustle Nation, and then the other was a you kind know, of like a directory and review platform for outsourcing services for virtual assistant companies, and that was uh, those two were kind of like the. The fallback plans or the uh, well, these things are working a little bit better than the shoe business right now, so let's focus some more time on those.
0: so it's sort of crazy how this all works, isn't it Nick that you you have a day job, you do a side hustle, the side hustle becomes your main gig, but then you do side hustles on the thing that's full time that was a side hustle, and they yeah. sort of <laughs> leapfrog I mean in many ways, I question some of my own past and say. And some of them did turn into legitimate businesses that I'm really grateful for. But do you find yourself getting into a pattern where you're building or need to build something that may not have sustainability? I just question that. You you know what I'm saying, Nick? Like, I think about this. Why don't we just have a business that just kept going? You know, that was viable. Why? there's no re you know why the shoe thing it sounds like you were buying uh paid traffic at the time could yeah. you have leveraged seo to do that i'm not picking on any of us i'm just saying what happens here and is it because is it because we try that pivot it doesn't work and then we're like oh i got these two other side hustles i got to start allocating time to because the revenue is going down and i need to replace that revenue i know it's going to take six, twelve months. I mean nothing happens overnight. Yeah. And does that ever do you ever think about that?
1: You know, this is a constant struggle, this this battle between simplicity and diversification. And I guess my general rule would be simplify first and diversify second. It's the failure to reinvest some of the profits into organic traffic and SEO was was definitely a mistake of mine with the shoe business. But at the same time, you can kind of see the writing on the wall, like this isn't going to last forever. So, okay, what's the next thing? And as long as, and I, and I think, you know, a lot of businesses have a finite lifespan, and I'm sure you can find examples of businesses that last longer than others. Um, thinking like even like, um, Coca Cola, right? You know, have been around for 120 something years at this point, and it's not going anywhere, but they know that the demand for carbonated Round sugar water is kind of on this long, slow decline. And so they're investing in a bunch of other things kind of in a similar field. And so that's kind of where I feel like I've played. Like, okay, I have this background in affiliate marketing. I've been learning SEO, learning online content. And so I can leverage those into other areas. And, you know, maybe it's not the exact same business model, because I tried to pivot into like handbags and sandals, like using the same site architecture as the shoe business. And neither of those ended up uh, working out very well. But, you know, if you take enough swings, something is something is going to hit.
0: Yeah. And I think what happens on the Internet, at least I've been around it for, gosh, a long time, is there are cycles and technology sort of catches up and outpaces you. I mean, there's been 100 social networks and Facebook's here today, but it won't be the central piece it you know then it's Instagram now it's TikTok you know you see the cycles happen and in my case with like you I saw the writing on the wall mainly because fishing I know we were focused on saltwater was to that people were catching too many fish in my opinion and there's not a lot of fish then you can't have a message board or a forum where there's interaction talking about where to find the fish because there's no more fish so for me, I saw the writing on the wall of saying, "Hey, that market, so to speak, is going to change, and I'm going to be stuck in a no-man's land." right? Nobody's going to buy boats, invest, yeah, all this money in it. So I, th- I think that that does happen. So you do the shoe business starts to decline, and you have Side Hustle Nation, which is, in many ways, a training academy for people. To help them find an idea, teach them how to get it going, and then you had another idea, which was what?
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, the uh, virtual assistant. Virtual
0: assistant, assistant, uh, yeah, you had a rating system on virtual assistants.
1: Yeah, it's actually predated uh, the side hustle stuff by a couple years. This was actually a really important project for me because it was the first time building in WordPress. It was the first time looking at WordPress as a as a CMS rather than just a straight like blog platform. You know, building you know, static content and, you know, playing around with different plugins, like my first YouTube videos, my first uh, Twitter account, my first guest posts, for any any particular reason. And so I owe a lot to that project. And, you know, started, it, it was just like, I had no idea how broad the outsourcing market was. Because like, in 2011, when I started, like, okay, there are these, you know, a handful of companies in India, Pakistan, Philippines, it's like, oh, there's a whole market of, Domestic U S Canada based assistance. There's a whole other brand of, you know, personal assistance in the UK. And, you know, that, and over the course of that time, we saw a lot of like the rise of really specialized services where, you know, we only do video editing or we only do graphic design and we, you know, have productized it where it's a flat monthly fee. So it was really, really cool to kind of be on the, you know, have a pulse on that industry and be a part of it and get to connect with the founders in a lot of cases and try and. Solicit reviews and over the course of nine years, kind of the cream rise to the top in a lot of ways where it became kind of a G2 or, um, a trust pilot, you know, for this specific, uh, industry, which is a cool place to be. And that site was monetized with like lead gen affiliate commissions. Like, Hey, you know, send us a new qualified customer. We'll send you a finder's fee. It was monetized with, you know, display ads and kind of like, uh, toward the end of its life or toward the end of the time that I owned it had a, you know, featured listing kind of like you see on search results. Like here's a you know the featured listing. So people would pay a flat monthly fee for that kind of exposure. It was a ton of fun. I had a great time with that and ended up selling it like October 2020.
0: Oh wow. Did you were you able to make some money off of that?
1: Yeah, in total, you know, it was a little over half a million in total revenue, including proceeds from the sale. The sale itself was like a low six figure sale. So it wasn't a it wasn't like a lifestyle changing sum of money. Still but it was a lot my first it was my first, you know, definitely the single biggest deposit that I ever seen hit my, hit my account. It was almost it was anticlimactic because you go, you are working on this, and you're going through the diligence with the buyer and everything, and then when it actually hits, you're just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, it finally happened or you know, got released from escrow. But that was that was cool because that was the first like real exit, and um, I don't know, it was it was a fun project. So the site is still around today. There's an interview on the side hustle show where, you know, my friend Pete from Do You Even blog is interviewing me about building and growing the site. And then at the end, Mika, the, the buyer actually comes on and like, well, you know, what did the transaction look like from your side of the perspective? What were you worried about? What was, you know, the transition process like? And so I think that was kind of a fun, a fun recap of a kind of a nine year project.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that I would have been really excited about having that with Nick is that you could actually vet out the best VAs and side outsourcers and use them for yourself because that process used to be for me and it was, it was called Upwork before Upwork. It was, there was freelancer. They were were, several of them merged.
1: Yeah. Odesk and Elance um, merged together. Odesk.
0: Yeah. And it was so hard. I think it's still hard. You know, I, I cringe when people are like, Oh, just get a virtual assistant. It's like, I don't know, from my experience, you got to go through a lot of them to figure out what's a match for you. There's a lot of agencies out there and having a service like yours would just really help vet it. So I would have loved that.
1: Yeah, some safety in numbers. I remember my first guy that I had hired full-time was through a service in Pakistan. And you know he joked that he knew more about shoes than any other 20-something guy in Karachi. And you know we would just have these G-chats. It was fascinating to learn about the culture over there, and they're like, hey, you know, we're you know, we're good for the day. You know, why don't you head home? He's like, you know, it's three in the morning over here. It's not really safe to go right now. <laughs> like, okay, well, why don't you research something else for a new blog article? I don't know. It was really cool to have an eye-opening lens into other cultures in some ways, and it was a helpful experience for me trying to build out processes that were all in my head and actually document those and the the frustration of being like, dude, you know, you know why aren't you getting this? <laughs> it's like, I've been, I can bang these out so quickly. It's like, Oh, it's because you've been doing it for four years, dummy. You know, here's somebody coming in brand new and it's like, Oh, maybe you didn't explain it well enough. And we had some really cool innovations in the business as a result of some of the uh, virtual team members over the years, where it's like, you know, you keep, you keep writing the same ad format over and over and over again. Did you know there's this thing called text expander? Like, No, I did not. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. That'll speed up the process a little bit. So it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Those projects are fun. Now, during this whole process, are you still doing the podcast?
1: The podcast hadn't started yet. Podcast started uh, 2013. And surprisingly, you know, in the first year of doing it, it had gained a lot more traction than the, than the blog had that I thought, you know, I'm, I'm such a great writer. People are going to be interested in my, you know, clever, in innovative and insightful blog content, no, what they really cared about was like other entrepreneurial success stories. Like, you know, you're not end-all-be-all guru. Just point the bike at somebody else and let them explain how they did it, and that worked well for an introvert like me. And it was cool to showcase a bunch of other stories. It kind of played into the natural curiosity that was part of the inspiration to start the site. It was just like, well, wait, wait a minute, how did you get your first customers for that? How did you figure out how much to charge? Where did you come up with that idea? You know, All those types of questions I find uh were really interesting and, and insightful to learn from.
0: Yeah, I think uh, even for me over the years, I just want to know how people did things. That's why this is so much fun. People are like, why are you doing podcasting? It's a lot of work. I'm like, well, I get to talk with colleagues about how they're doing it and hear the story behind the story because people... All they hear about is the success. I mean, I was reading about Noom, the weight loss app, and my friend actually sold his company. He's, he's from here in the valley. He it wasn't a big sale, but he sold it to Noom probably 5 years ago and I maybe more 6 years ago. COVID sort of warps time for me, but and I was reading about Noom, well, Noom is not an overnight success. They've been they've been they they did it for 10 years before they even got to a model that worked. Wow. And that's the reaction. Like, and that's for me, the curiosity is because I keep, I don't know what it is, Nick. Like, do we, as fellow entrepreneurs, you know that there's no magic easy pill, but you still want to believe that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that you haven't seen. I don't know, because you just know how hard it is. Like, what is that? Right. Yeah. What keeps you going
1: for 10 years trying to find that model? That works, and I don't know. You've been in the game a lot longer than me. I imagine it's pretty fun to connect with colleagues from the late '90s who are still in the game in some way. You know, maybe they've reinvented themselves half a dozen times over that time. But I find the same thing. Like people that I met at like my very first online business conferences. Like I just get a kick. They're like, oh, what are you working on now? It's just I love to see, to see people still getting after it. And there was a, a guest on the show, Ryan Finley makes his whole living, or at least did at the time, makes his whole living, is buying and selling appliances off of Craigslist. Started off with maybe 20, 25 grand in debt. Goal was to erase that debt. Can I go find 50 bucks in profit today? Yes or no? And you know, that was his like marker of success. But at the end of the show, he's like, Nick, the best opportunities become visible once you're already in motion. And I think that kind of highlights a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. It's like, you know, this project Kind of inadvertently led to this project. It, you know, you have this conversation, which sparks this idea, or you're doing research for this other thing. And, you know, that inspires, that was the inspiration for the virtual assistant site, kind of combined with my own personal pain points of like trying to find decent help overseas, like which companies are legit? How do you know? How does this work? Am I not going to get scammed? Are they going to steal my idea? But I was actually trying to build like this wine related site, like a wine gift site. I don't care about wine. I know nothing about wine. I had no business trying to create this site. And for that reason, there was no reason for anybody else to like come and, and visit it and had no idea what I was doing, SEO-wise, anything. But I was in doing the research for that site, I came across this site that was like reviewing wine clubs. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting niche. That's a really interesting model. Like I wonder what I could pivot that to, like use that same basic framework. And I actually had somebody on Odesk probably at that time like, you know, borrow that same theme, like, here is the template. Can you fill this in? Or can you customize this to make it be about outsourcing? Can you make this about virtual assistants instead? And so like, had I not been working on this totally complete flop of a failure of a project that, you know, and never probably would have come up with that other idea.
0: I think that's the truth. Do when you're when you were, so you're doing the virtual assistant, you sold that in 2020, right? Yes. So your parallel processing side hustle nation. What's At that point, do you decide that after the shoe company site sort of starts to wane off, I'm going to do Side Hustle Nation? And how do you? What is Side Hustle Nation's original business model in your mind? Didn't really have one, which was appreciate being honest about that.
1: You know, it was one of those: step one, create content; step two, build an audience; you know, step three question, 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 you know, step four, profit. It kind of like, ah, what's it going to be? The first thing that I sold was a private mastermind with yours, truly, which was inspired by a friend of mine, Alex Barker. He's like, Hey, you got, you got people paying attention to you, which is not easy to do on the internet. They'd probably pay to hang out with you. Like, really? Like, yeah. So, okay, I'll try that. Put that out there. You know, got six, seven, eight applications for a hundred bucks a month to meet weekly. And That was the first like real monetization outside of, you know, random affiliate links. Today, the three legs of the side hustle stool (laughs) or side hustle revenue stool are sponsorships on the podcast, which probably took three, four years for that to start to be like a measurable amount of income or a significant amount of income. It was affiliate income on the site and through the email list to a certain extent. And then the third leg historically has been like my own side hustle experiments. So I would have lumped the virtual assistant site into that bucket. I would link the, uh, lump the self publishing experiments, you know, early on in side hustle nation. That was the thesis. Like, okay, I'll be the guinea pig. I'll test this stuff out. I'll report back what works, what doesn't. And so freelancing, flipping stuff on eBay. Like I had all these plans to be, you know, a Lyft driver and report back on how this works and, you know, test a bunch of stuff out. And that's kind of shifted to being uh, you know kind of playing journalist in a way, like okay, you know I'm probably not going to become a wedding officiant or a mobile notary, but you know let's find somebody else who's done that and let them showcase their story and and advice to get started there. So that third leg of the stool is admittedly pretty short these days after uh, selling off the VA site.
0: You did you published some books? What was your? I mean, you you did experiment with self publishing, right? You, how many books do you have now? It's probably. Five, six, seven—I don't know. It's like, did, did you write like, them all yourself? Yes. After a failed
1: experiment in trying to outsource one of them, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I didn't.
0: I haven't found that that works. Yeah, that was really early on. That was—I don't know. I don't know why I thought. You know, that was. I'll tell you why. Because the pot at the end of the rainbow—that we all think, all mm-hmm. of us think that we can do that—and it will be easier to do. And it's very hard for someone to have your voice.
1: It is. And to be able to sign your name to something that you know is not yours. And you're like, even if it's passable in terms of English and content, you just like, that's just not me. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to sign my name to that. And so I ended up basically completely scrapping their work. What I came back with was double the word count and hopefully a better product. But yeah, there's, there's a bunch of books out there. I started out with looking at Amazon as kind of a, as a side hustle income opportunity, my first book was twenty twelve It was on the topic of virtual assistance. I got my first royalty check for like forty six dollars and twenty seven cents or something, and was like i did it i'm a I'm a published author. you know people somebody bought my thing and it was a really cool moment, and it's a testament to the power of Amazon. I thought people would come to the website, which had kind of a crappy looking design at the time see that I wrote the book and forgive the crappy design. Well, you wrote the book on the subject. He must know what he's talking about. Instead, what happened was people searched for Assistant on Amazon because through the magic of affiliate link tracking, I could tell nobody bought the book through the website. Instead, they found it by searching directly on Amazon and then discovered the site afterwards. It was a really cool eye-opening moment. But now, even today, with the portfolio of titles that are out there, it's probably a sub $500 a month income stream in most months. So instead trying to look at Amazon as, you know, low friction, top of the funnel, like discovery engine. If somebody searches, make extra money, if somebody searches side hustle, like I want my stuff to be up there. And in fact, one of the books is permanently free, or at least it at least it should be uh, for the US store on Kindle, just as a way to expose people to the brand, introduce people to the podcast in this model of starting a business.
0: So is it worth writing a book? I
1: just have a kick out of doing it. I mean, it is a ton of work it's
0: did it give you credibility that's a maybe i'm not asking the question the right way did it give you credibility one is it has search value is what you've said which can be huge especially in a search engine like amazon yeah but it did it move you to another level that you feel like gave you credibility because of this tangible piece of knowledge that you published
1: in, in some circles, probably in the online business circles, probably less so because everyone knows like, okay, well, the barrier to entry and self-publishing is, is next to nothing before, you know, outside people like friends and family, like they're impressed.
0: Like, oh, you have a book. Like, oh, that's kind of cool. What about you know? customers? Like you have a, you know, the people on your email list who follow you.
1: I mean, they, we've talked about self-publishing enough that they know that it's not that hard to do. But I think it's, it's a value add for them, hopefully at a low price point where it's consolidated a bunch of information from the blog and podcast over the years into, you know, an easily digestible package. What, you know, another badge of social proof was doing a, a TEDx talk at our local event, like 2014. When I probably really had no business being up on that stage and everybody was like sharing about their life saving EMT apps that would connect off duty ambulance workers if there was an emergency nearby. Like, I sell shoes on the internet and I have this podcast. And it would just it felt you know very much imposter syndrome being up there. But it was cool to have that, you know, be able to slap the TEDx badge up on the site. And it's like, oh, okay, this guy, I think that was a a big credibility boost. So will you write another book? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, I don't know what the next title is gonna be. The last one was 1K 100 Ways, which I thought was going to be the easiest book project in the world. This is basically crowdsourcing stories from the side oscillation community, put it out on Google Forms, and hey, we'll see what comes back. And what came back, some of it was gold and some of it was less golden. Like some people gave you 1,500 words and other people gave you 150. And you're like, well, how do you make this in you know, a consistent format and you know so there's a lot of back and forth trying to get to and I promised, you know, like I promised a hundred ways, like so I can't publish, you know, eighty-nine ways. Like I gotta, you know, try and geek out those last uh, those last few stories. But it ended up taking a bunch of time because we had the kids off school because of the, the pandemic in a lot of cases and trying to maintain the other content in the podcast and just kind of ended up taking a back burner for a lot of lot of months. But eventually got out there. I'm not sure what the next title is gonna be, but I'm sure I'll continue to go back to Amazon as a source of customers, as a source of credibility for the brand, and uh, I don't know. I just get a kick out of writing that type of content. It doesn't have the same pressure of writing a blog post that you're like, "Well, I put all this time and effort into it, so I hope it, hope it ranks on Google. Otherwise, you know, it's just a waste of time."
0: Yeah, that's cr- it, it. Is true. That's the value of a blog post. It seems is where are you going to get it ranked over time? How many words are is your average book?
1: At the short end, 25,000 at the long end, maybe 70.
0: So it, it, it's a quite a bit of work. It's, it's at the shortest, a skyscraper blog post, which I don't even know if that I don't do those as much anymore because I'm not sure that the SEO. I think you can get, well, I'll be interested in your opinion. I think you can get just as much credibility off of a shorter blog post than. Some skyscraper, then then I don't I think I think 500 words is too short still, but yeah. do you agree on that? Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, I've switching. been
1: actively trimming word count from from a lot of posts lately, or trying to. We've seen a a shift from Google from you know word count is a symbol of authority to you know maybe exercising a little bit of curation is a symbol of authority. Like you don't need to spit 7,000 words at us if three or four is going to do the trick. So yeah, I've definitely seen that shift in the last uh, year or two.
0: You publish a monthly, well, I saw, I think the latest one was Q3, Q4 update. It's sort of a income report in many ways. You call it accountability report, I believe. I've seen other people do it. I've talked to some podcasters who've had success over the years who do publish the monthly income report. Pat Flynn used to do it down to the nickel or the penny yeah Uh, john lee dumas does it to the penny some people claim that that gives them accountability but also seo juice because you get picked up by other places what's your thoughts about doing that sort of element to your business online
1: yeah i i think you know maybe for those pure income reports maybe there is some linkability factor where other sites are doing, you know, uh, income report roundup and, you know, how much did uh, JLD make this month? And they'll link over to it. In my case, these are an example of blog posts that I, you know, write pretty much only for the core fans (laughs) and and for myself, right? Like nobody's going to search this stuff in Google. Like it's not going to, you know, bring new people into the fold. But from, for me, I liked reading these types of posts on other sites, kind of like the, behind the scenes like what are you working on what projects worked what didn't maybe work so much like how did the site grow like are you struggling with the same things that i'm struggling with how are you addressing you know email list growth or whatever challenge you're facing so this one is very much the progress reports are very much for the uh you know kind of the hardcore readers that want to know the, the behind the scenes nuts and bolts and then for myself it's helpful to find a recap of like dude three months went by like what do you have to show for it what did you put out there are you better off today than you were 3 months ago and if so how and if not why and i have a fun time kind of doing those recaps
0: so it sounds like most of your income really comes from the podcast and the affiliates you you don't actually give actual numbers did you ever do give actual numbers like that or in general just rounding out
1: i've done it for specific projects but not on a aggregate basis so i think we've talked about Especially in terms of like self-publishing, like oh, this book launch made fourteen hundred bucks, or this book earned eighteen thousand bucks in its first year, or this Udemy course launch earned thirty five hundred in its first sixty days. It's like you know, kind of like project piecemeal type of stuff. Or I, the other one was like I made seven hundred bucks like flipping random stuff on Amazon. You know, fun fun blog post content like that. Do
0: you think that that helps? It just makes it more tangible. One of the questions that. I've always had even as as early as I started on the internet is it's easy to make yourself appear popular I mean you can make yourself look popular you can put out tons of content if you SEO or you now on social media there's lots of tricks. My question always is that's awesome, but how much money do they really make because right. You know, like, am I going to chase this dream of putting offers together and doing, quote unquote, direct marketing, right, on the internet? Or am I really going to be an affiliate marketer? I mean, I I did affiliate marketing, to your point earlier, we used to be able to make a lot of money. I still have, I used to have 3,000 domain names. You know, now I have 312 affiliate sites because... Mainly the the income, the market changed. So I think I'm grateful for what you write. I want to write the same thing. I just really getting back into it and haven't had time to do that. But I think there is an element for the audience that you're building that changes the conversation between you and that customer or potential customer that says, okay, this this person or this company is being so transparent that you know i'm not being tricked by buying a course or buying this book or ebook or whatever the hell it is
1: yeah i think there's something to that the difference between uh revenue and uh and bottom line profit is a common question right it's like oh sure you had a six figure business or sure you had a seven figure business but how much of that you know actually trickled down to the bottom line because during you know a, that low point in in the shoe business right still a multi six figure business but you know we're spending all that money on advertising and trying to redevelop the website. So it's like, you know, what trickled down to the bottom was a pretty thin margin there. So definitely something to keep in mind. And, and I think that transparency helps in a lot of ways because it kind of showcases, okay, what, what does it take to run something like that?
0: Yeah. I, I cringe when people start talking about funnels these days and you can build a seven figure business and you can get your award and whatever anybody can. I, I mean, I'm serious. If you have some savings, anybody can build a million dollar in revenue business. That's not the question. The question is, how much did you spend in customer acquisition costs to get the million dollars? Because you and I, if I gave you a budget, you could drive a million dollars very easily. Now, if I said, hey, we, Nick, we're going to go do this, but we got to make, we got a net, not EBITDA. We've got a net 350. Now the discussion becomes more interesting, right? yeah, it's a different game, and I just cringe at all this stuff. What's the i mean you're a side hustle expert, so what is the number one side hustle that pe- that you've found in your audience people you interact with that's successful in truly generating some you know side hustle money i I do want to, and I, I'm going to couple this so you can answer both of these. I cringe about passive income because I have never found anything that's truly passive in the sense that I haven't had to invest. I don't want to be dramatic and use the word enormous, but a lot of time setting up. Yeah. No. So there's.
1: Uh, I'll scratch that off my uh, HPT uh, list here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So what's the number one? like successful side hustle in the sense that works that you've seen for people?
1: Yeah. So for people getting started, it's, you know, either starting a service based business or a product based business, the advantages of both of those is, you can get off the ground for relatively low cost, and you can start to see results really quickly. In the service example, it's like, you know sticking your flag in the sand and saying I'm a freelancer that does blah 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 or that solves this problem for this type of customer, and you know you got one client and you're off to the races. And on the product side, it could be decluttering the garage, it could be flipping stuff from garage sales, yard sales. You know, start with what you're comfortable with in terms of investment and go out and and resell it and prove to yourself that it's real. That was the same thing with me and like the Amazon. Arbitrage business. It's like in the era of big data, you're telling me there's profit on the shelves of Walmart. Walmart has to know this. Like, it didn't make any sense. Yet there it was, and it was kind of a needle in the haystack search. And maybe the hourly rate wasn't amazing, but it was there for the taking if if you wanted to do it on the service side. Like, so the question is always like, well, what happens when that Walmart clearance shelf, you know, runs out of inventory, or what happens? If I'm selling a service and I just run out of hours in the week, there's a natural limitation to this stuff. I think there's if you can make a slight pivot to the mindset from the very early days. Like if your if your goal is kind of not just stop gap or say if you want to build something that's got some time leverage, maybe not, maybe not passive income, but it's like leveraged time. If you can pivot your thinking to saying, well, I want to, you know, walk dogs as a side hustle to I want to have a dog walking company. I want to clean houses as a side hustle versus I have a house cleaning company. And we've seen some people doing some really interesting space in that home services arena using that like so-called drop servicing model where you're essentially playing matchmaker between people who need help and qualified professionals who know how to do it. But maybe they just suck at marketing or just maybe their website is from like 1998 and it says like fax me for a quote or something like make it easy for that Amazon Prime one quick order customer who's just, you know, Show up when you're gonna show up. You know, tell me how much it's gonna cost. Don't make me beat around the bush. Just make it easy for me. I had a guy on recently, I interviewed him on his last day of college, have built his house clean or his window washing business to like seven hundred grand, right? Revenue, not profit. I don't know how much shakes down to the bottom line, but you know, he's building this big operation uh using that similar model, like finding qualified professionals who already know how to do the work and just playing a better digital marketing game. Yelp, Google reviews, Facebook reviews, and you know, really dominating the local business. I think that was a cool example. We've seen people replicate that in home cleaning, in gutter cleaning, pressure washing, uh, mobile car detailing. I think there's a lot of room to play in these local, fragmented markets where there's no dominant, you know, regional or national player.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And you know, the passive income for me, I would say I use a different word. It's, I like things to work for me when we're not working. And I think that's what you mean. I think that's what I mean. I think that other people use the word, have ruined the passive income phrase because they want to make it sound like it's so easy for someone. If you build an online business, that thing's working for you when you're not working. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than getting checks yeah, or, or, or seeing the emails come through right now while we're recording this podcast that say, Oh, you just sold something. You just sold something. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, um,
1: it's really rewarding.
0: But it takes work.
1: Yes, it's upfront. It's figuring out a way to get paid over and over again from the work you do once, and it's not the most elegant. Like passive sounds, you know, a little sexier. It's a little more elegant way to say that. But that's essentially what it is. It's leveraging your time so that it's not straight hours for dollars. So that you know, oftentimes very speculative investment in time and effort upfront, where you're not getting paid anything, and that's why. For people who need to make money quickly, like, okay, go sell a service, like, go solve somebody's problem. But if you have a little bit more runway, which a lot of side hustle nation does, and I found myself in the same boat, you know, when I was working corporate, like, I don't hate it. I don't need to like get out of this cubicle hell tomorrow. Like, you know, if it, if it takes a little bit of time, that's okay. I think a lot of people are in that boat. And so they have the runway and the flexibility to build something like that, that, you know, is a little bit more speculative upfront, but given enough. Time and effort. Maybe that's the online content game, where you're building up this blog, or you're building up this podcast, or YouTube channel, or TikTok audience, whatever it may be. Right? You can go where your customers already are, but then you can ultimately reach, you know, instead of one to one, or instead of having you know one employer, now you have this audience of thousands and thousands of people that can support you.
0: Where do you think? I mean, you've been in podcasting. It seems the pillar of Side Hustle Nation. What do you think the state of podcasting is today, and where do you think it's going?
1: Podcasting is definitely a more competitive place than it was in 2013. But I will say, in 2013, it still felt crowded, right? Pat Flynn was in the game. John Lee Dubas was in the game. Amy Porterfield, you mentioned. David Seitman-Garland had like the rise to the top. Mixergy was going strong. There were plenty of entrepreneurial podcasts already out there. Did the world you know really need another one? That was definitely something... That went through my head. So, um, I see it only becoming more crowded. So like, you know, a year from now, you're going to wish you started today kind of a thing. A couple of big shifts in the landscape. Obviously the arrival of big media and celebrity podcasts, right? Where, you know, the cool thing is they're often bringing a new audience into the fold. Um, and I saw the same thing with uh, Chris Gillibot when he launched Side Hustle School in, I want to say early 2016. My initial reaction was like, crap. You know, here comes this, you know, multi-New York Times bestselling author, you know, coming into my territory. I'm like, dude, you know, this this was supposed to be my niche. What are you doing? I never saw a bigger spike in downloads than that first month because, you know, people would search Side Hustle Podcast, who ranked in Google, you know, you know, he was brand new. And his episodes were only like five minutes. They're like, well, this is an interesting concept. What else you got? Oh, here's a slightly different format. Oh, longer form. Okay, this is interesting. So the rising tide lifts all boats. And I think there's still a ton of market share left to quote unquote conquest in the podcasting world. Because I think, I don't know, the latest stat, but like, you know, half the population still doesn't listen to podcasts, like when they discover, you know, on demand audio on whatever topic that I want to learn about, like, okay, I think there's still a lot of room uh, to grow in that space. But starting today, I We'll probably put more emphasis on the video discovery, like the YouTube discovery, because what podcasts, podcasting sucks at is discoverability, right? Search functionality sucks. Analytics suck. Really difficult to kind of find your people. And YouTube makes that a lot easier where it's combination search engine, where if I can be strategic and target, you know, search intent in the title of this uh, episode or the title of this podcast and they have this combination of like this viral engine where you can get recommended on other relevant topics and so i think that combination is something that is a is a advantage over there instead of just you know playing it straight on the podcast front.
0: Yeah i tend to agree with you. I've been playing around with YouTube. I was on YouTube a long time ago but i think that podcasting is really hard to discover for someone starting out in a podcast in whatever niche it is so hard to get the word out People like you and I, I think, have had email lists that have helped get that word out and keep people coming back. But for someone who only has ten people on their email list, I say you just keep emailing the ten people because those ten people are going to tell ten people, et cetera. But it can seem daunting, I think, to to sort of tackle that. But
1: yeah, well, let's talk about that for a second because I, okay. I had an email. I had email list of eleven people when I watched the podcast completely. You know, friends and family, right? No, no existing audience to speak of. But what I had and what probably all your listeners have is, you know, this lifetime of connections, like, you know, whatever the average person has 246 Facebook friends and 150 LinkedIn connections or something like those are people who at least somewhat care what you're working on. And so you might be able to message those folks. What I did was I had, you know, 10 years of gmail history or something at that point eight years i guess and i didn't really realize you could like export your contacts and have like a better like list view of this but i just started typing in the compose window like the alphabet and so it hit a and it would like oh aaron would pop up oh i haven't emailed aaron in a while like hey Aaron, what's going on buddy it's been a minute you know what are you up to these days because it's it's natural for him to respond with some reciprocity and say hey here's what i'm working on what about you you know what's new in the life (laughs) That's what I would do today. What I actually did was like, Hey, I just started this podcast. Here's the link to download it. You don't even have to listen to it. Every download helps. Like I'm trying to like pump up the algorithm and it was not, not the world's greatest uh, outreach, but that was enough to kind of get the, get the ball rolling. And we've seen that on iTunes and Amazon and Udemy and even Fiverr to a certain extent. Like if you can give these algorithms a little bit of nudge, put your little bit of your own marketing muscle into it, then hopefully the algorithm starts spinning in your favor. And I think that's what happened in the case of uh, iTunes in my case uh, early on.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I think people need to know that, that you, you can do it. I mean, you, you really can do it. I started this podcast. It took actually a few name changes, a few finding your voice, my voice, again, yep. that's not easy. You know, you got to practice. And what happens is people just don't get to it. The, the interesting thing I found, Nick, about podcasts is is that while they say there's 2 million podcasts, there's like only 1%. Now, don't quote me. I'm not looking at I don't want to look up what we're talking. But only 1% have over 10 episodes. Only yeah. like 0.025% 0. <laughs> 0. have over 100 episodes. So if you can just suck it up and stay in the game, you can get there. I think
1: you can keep at it that people come into it as a bright, shiny new thing and then realize oh, this is, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I would tell people, Hey, Nick, what do you do? Well, I host this weekly uh, podcast called the side hustle show. And they're like, well, that's cool what do you do the rest of the time? (laughs) And it's like, oh, there's a little more that goes into it. But I will geek out on podcast marketing all day long. One thing that I think helped early on was this recognition of the hurdle to get this potentially really strong episode or really strong audio content. Just get it out of the internet ether like and into a listenable format. So making sure that headline, that Value proposition is really compelling, like borderline clickbaity. Like, what is it going to be? What is promised at the, you know, to invest my time in this 45 minute thing from somebody I never heard of? Like, that title has got to be really strong. And that was kind of my initial introduction to podcasting. It was probably like, you know, followed some link from Twitter, get to the page and it's blank. And then you notice the little like player at the top. like. You know, pre-smartphone, like, how do I, how do I, I, I would love to listen to this at the, at the gym or something, but how do I even get it onto my device? If you can help people do that by making it too juicy not to share, like, wait a minute, how this guy, like one of my early examples of that was like episode five, how this one guy earned enough money on Fiverr to buy a house in his first year. And that was, that was the pitch that we went with. And so it was kind of a compelling hook in it for, for the longest time. Like he was the most downloaded episode. So I'm trying to play around with that because I was a guest on somebody's show and they do, they do what you're supposed to do. They're like, Hey, Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Your episode is live today. We'd love if you would share and you click on it. And it just says like episode 33, Nick Loper. And you're like, oh, <laughs> nobody knows who I am. Like who cares? Like what's in it for me as a listener. So kind of trying it's to
0: keep good advice. On. It's good advice. I, I I don't want to keep you too long because we're going over time, but <laughs> I appreciate it. I, You and I probably have a conversation for three hours. Maybe you'll have to come down here and come into the studio. But copywriting is one of the most underappreciated, less, I think, for the last, I didn't time you, but I think it was three and a half minutes, you talked about writing the right title. Whether it's YouTube, it's really the title and the first few lines of your description. That's all copywriting. And if you want to do this, you really have to be, you need to get good at copywriting because I tried to outsource it. I'm raising my hand. It's just too hard in my opinion, because you know, the, the really good copywriters aren't hiring themselves out. They're copywriting for themselves and making a bunch of money. So would you agree with that? That it, that the, I mean, you, you do need to focus on copywriting.
1: Yeah. It's huge because, you know, before anybody. Is going to tune into you. They've got to overcome this hurdle of like, well, why am I tuning into you? So it's got to be compelling. The non-audio element has to be compelling to get somebody to overcome that. Because it's still a pain. It's still a pain to get the device. I got to you gotta find your show. I got to find the exact episode I'm looking for. I got to download the thing. It's um, it's troubling. But once somebody's in, it's a really valuable. Like because now they're going to spend. 30 40 minutes with you in their earbuds they build this really strong relationship with you over time they tell their friends about it like i think i mean that's the the real secret is like turning one listener into two and you know you do that through creating something that's really compelling and shareable um, that has the potential to not podcasts don't really tend to go viral i mean maybe serial is kind of an example in the early days but it's just like oh i know three people who would really benefit from listening to this i got to send it their way and kind of starts to spider out from there
0: I think you're right. I made a ton of mistakes. I'll be honest. I saw Joe Rogan. I was like, Joe Rogan just puts the episode number and the guy's name and people listen and you're like, yeah, because he's just, been around for 20 years and you don't have to do that anymore. But, you know, if you're lesser known, you're going to have to be creative with that. So, yeah. listen, listen, man, this has been a fun conversation winding up here. What does your day look like at a at Side Hustle Nation and building Side Hustle Nation and what do you? I mean, you record one episode a week. What else do you do? Yeah, um, I try
1: and batch those on uh on Tuesdays, and finally have a little bit of uh breathing room this year. It's been it's been kind of nice, like having you know probably a month out in terms of scheduling, which is good instead of being like crap. Where you know, who who's on who's on air this week? I got to come up with something. The day in the life usually up between six and six thirty. Try and get a workout in uh, first thing. I find that really just sets the tone for the day. I feel so much better when I make that a priority, getting the kids ready and out the door really for the next couple hours. Like school starts so late right now. It's like we have have all this time in the morning and it reminds me of, you know, maybe that's silver lining of the pandemic was like we had nowhere to go and all day to get there. Like, you know, it felt very luxurious in a way. I think that's Tim Ferriss. To me, luxury is feeling unrushed. So lots of lots of luxury in the morning these days. You know, back from dropping the kids off by nine fifteen, nine thirty, get the coffee going and get to work. Like I typically will itemize out my top priorities for the day the night before so I kinda know what to work on and that helps me stay on task instead of diving into reactive mode and email and all that nonsense early on. Try and stack up meetings and recordings on Tuesdays just for like more deep work the other days of the week. typically have Fridays off with uh with the family or with the kids or with my youngest, I guess is the other one is in school now, just kind of a kind of a bummer like i don't I don't work Fridays like you know we've we've had you know the first five years of your life. We were off every Friday hanging out, but unfortunately they they want them to show up five days a week. What's up with that? um no, usually shutting down by. got to go pick them up. You know, maybe catching up on email between four and five as they veg out with some Netflix and then off at five usually.
0: Right on. Well, that's a very efficient day and week, Nick. I appreciate you sharing that. How about three HPTs, high percentage tips for our listeners who want to do a side hustle?
1: Oh, I know we were joking about passive income, but I think there's this Warren Buffett line that's, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he's like, if you don't figure out a way to make money in your sleep, you're going to work until you die. And I don't think anybody necessarily wants that. At least they want the optionality not to have to do that. Um, And it's kind of like what you said—not necessarily passive income, but the ability to earn money while you're not working, right? And we are just not really taught that in school. It's like go to work, get a job, you know, maybe do some investing, and so maybe like the dividend portfolio that your that your investments spin off. Like, okay, that's your passive income. But when you eventually want to retire, like, okay, is that going to be enough to cover your expenses? Or you know, I'm going to Draw down with a four percent withdrawal rate. So I think it's critically important that you carve out some time in your week to invest in these time leveraged projects. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the secret sauce. You know, not all, not all are going to work, but if you keep at it and you're diligent and dedicated and educate yourself about it, something is going to hit. And it's like if you keep the risks low. And the upside's great enough. It's really just a matter of taking enough swings. So dedicating some of your time to these time-leveraged income streams. And I don't know if you have time for an example. We can go through that or if you want to move on to the next one. No, I have
0: all the time in the world. I'll talk to you all day long, so go ahead.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite examples is uh, Matt Boknock. He's a mechanical engineer in Chicago. He's got like four kids now. His original side hustle was... Fixing motorcycles in his garage, like straight up hours for dollars, add on Craigslist, save on dealership rates, you know, bring it to me. I know what I'm doing. What Matt did that I think was really, really cool was set the camera up in the corner of the garage, films himself doing the repairs. So all of a sudden now he's got content for YouTube. He starts selling these full engine rebuild videos. He is getting affiliate income from this content. We have done now three episodes with Matt on the side hustle show where he went from. 100% of his income being active to now almost 100% of it being time leveraged in the form of he just branched out into physical products, but he's still got these digital product downloads. He's got the affiliate income sponsored content. I mean, people were buying him by, he had like a little button, like buy him out of beer or something on his, like had all this cool stuff that was a result of doing this speculative work. If you're figuring out how to a way to get paid over and over again from work you do once, I think it was a really inspiring story.
0: I love that story. Uh, I've actually listened to that story on your podcast, so nice. Uh, that's that's a cool story.
1: All right, we we're on to uh, HPT number, uh, HPT number two. two. Um, we talked a little bit about the itemizing out priorities the night before. So I'm gonna scratch that one and, and focus on this like early morning workout. I find that just gets gets the blood pumping, gets the endorphins going, sets the tone for the day. It kind of reinforces this identity habit like okay i am the type of person who you know prioritizes where i live and i live in this this you know increasingly aging body and i need to take care of it it's something that you know richard branson has given as his number one productivity hack for years it was really tough for me to prioritize i was like but that's time that i could be you know working on something else and it was really tough to do but i think it's an investment that really pays a a lot of dividends in both physical and mental health. So prioritizing that. And then number three for me is just taking time for gratitude. Like for years, I would have this daily email that would trigger at the end of the day. I set this up with nudge mail, which I think is still a, a service that's around, but like it would, it would connect with this Google form. It would ask me, what'd you get done today? And, when, and what are you grateful for? Right. So kind of this personal accountability and it would just, you know, dump into some Google sheet where, you know, at, if you're having a bad time, you can go back and scroll through all of these, like, you know, little grateful moments. Today I'm doing this as part of like my meditation habit. Like, you know, it has just a little moment for a journal entry at the end of it. So like, well, what, you know, no matter how stressful, no matter how crazy the kids were, like, okay, there's always something to be grateful for. I find that's a helpful mental reset for me.
0: Love that. Tr- have that little thing on our Slack channel and it's just three questions and it really makes, it makes a difference. It actually, always makes me feel better that I did something. Cause sometimes as a I think as a business owner you feel like, where'd my day go? But those are awesome. Nick, where's the best place for listeners to find you and Side Hustle Nation? SidehustleNation.com is
1: the home base. Of course, we'd love to have you tune into the Side Hustle Show. We're closing in on five hundred. Episode so there's a little uh, Spotify like greatest hits playlist if you want to like have a little bit of curation there before trying to decide well where should I start on this but tons and tons of really cool case studies from entrepreneurs really all around the world at this point have a have had a great time sharing their stories and I think you'll enjoy them too
0: awesome Nick this has been a ton of fun thanks a lot for making time and sharing your side hustle nation story and the secret sauce behind having a side hustle you bet man bye everyone thanks for being generous with your time and joining us for this episode of the edge before you go a quick question are you the type of person who wants to get a hundred percent out of your time talent and ideas if so you'll love our monthly edge newsletter It's a monthly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business. In each newsletter, we pull back the curtain on our business and show you exactly what's happening, the real numbers, real conversion rates, lessons learned from failed and successful strategies, and how we're investing the money we make from our business to outperform the general stock market. We lay out what we're doing to get 75% conversion rates on our product pages. How we're optimizing our Facebook, Instagram, and other paid ads to get our leads under $3.87. The results from our email A-B tests. Results from strategies I test to get more done in less time. That allows me to ride my bike 100 plus miles a week, work out, spend time with Yvette, and still successfully run our business. How I'm investing the money we make from our business that has led our retirement account to average 20% over the last 10 years. The exact stocks, ETFs, cryptocurrencies, and other investments we're buying each and every month. And tons of other actionable information. Imagine the time and money you'll save by having this holy grail of business intelligence. You can take all of it, apply it to your life as an entrepreneur to avoid costly mistakes, and be happier, healthier, and richer. As a fellow entrepreneur who's aiming for nothing short of success, you owe it to yourself to subscribe. Check out the special offer with bonuses for you as a listener at edgenewsletter.com. Again, that's edgenewsletter.com.